turn to the book of First Timothy. First Timothy. I want to ask you a question here as we get started. When Jesus said, I will build my church, said that Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he makes this great statement. What in the world did he mean by that? What, what is the church supposed to do? What is the church? Uh, well, how is it supposed to function? What traits is the church supposed to have? And Jesus said, this is my church. I intend to build it. And he wants it crystal clear in the minds of those who are truly trusting him what in the world he's intending. And the problem is, is that the church is facing an identity crisis. We're, uh, we're not even sure what exactly we're supposed to be doing. In fact, some people are even questioning, do we really follow Jesus, Lord, or are you just kind of assent to a certain body of theology, but you kind of go and make it up and do it as your own. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. I'm the architect. I'm the builder. I'm the owner. I'm the Lord. My people hear my voice and they will follow me. Christ actually intends to accomplish his will in his people. And that word church, ecclesia, means those who are literally called out from something. And that's really what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's been called out of the world and it's idolatry, whether you were worshiping some sort of uh, career or money or finance or person, you found your identity, security, purpose, peace in something or someone other than God You have turned from your sin, missing the mark, trusting Christ. He actually intends to build his church. But the question is, what in the world is Jesus trying to do? We're facing an identity crisis. And really, today in modern day, especially American Christianity, it's kind of like it when you go to those burrito places where you just kind of order whatever you want. You guys know what I'm talking about. And they're they're pretty popular and they're great. You know, and you just walk in there. They even ask you what kind of tortilla you want. You know, I'm like, uh... I'll take the green one as long as that's not mold, right? And, you know, and then like, and they're like, okay, what do you want on there? And they, do you want this? Do you want extra guacamole? Do you want uh, more beans, less rice? And, and then the next guy or the gal, they order something completely different. And that's kind of how church is going today. People just kind of make it up. Whatever you want and anything you want goes. And so what's happening is we have all these quote-unquote churches, but they are building and designing their own burrito And it may have very little to do with what God has described and defined in his word. And not not to mention that the church has landed an identity crisis, but think of our own culture. We are in a moral tailspin right now. We are actually, just like Isaiah said, we're at a point where we're calling wrong right and right wrong, right? And so we're living in a culture that has just gone crazy. It's totally lost its moorings. And you've got a church that's out there floundering, not exactly sure what they're supposed to do, who they're following, what it's supposed to look like. And then you've also got the world that is influencing the church instead of the church making an impression upon the world. And so we're living in this time where we've got a lot of churches and we've got a lot of motion, but we have very little meaning. In fact, the church is losing relevance because we're losing our focus and our connection with the very head the very one who said, I'm going to build my church. So, if Christ is building his church, don't you think that it is critical that you and I, as those who are part of the church, actually are following what he's intending to build? 
Isn't it important that we actually have clarity as to his vision and his mission? The whole New Testament always speaks to the church of what God is seeking to build and he describes it. Every single book offers insight as to what God intends for his church. But there is one book in the Bible where it's completely dedicated and devoted to what God intends the people, his people to embody, the traits he describes them. It's the book of 1 Timothy. It's actually written in a personal letter. It's a part of Holy Scripture because God wants every single person who's a Christian to know what he's trying to do with the church. And if you got your Bibles open to 1 Timothy, I want you to open up to the very heart of it, chapter 3, because in chapter 3, he actually tells you this is the whole purpose of this book. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Paul's writing, and he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed. If you ever want to see sovereignty, where God actually delays Paul, He writes, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. I am writing this letter to you, Timothy, so that you will be able to pass on and for all generations until Christ returns, the church will know how to function and the traits that it is supposed to have. And and let me just tell you, As pastors and elders here at Fellowship Bible Church, we are interested in one thing, Christ and what he intends for the church to be. We're not making it up as we go. We're not like, hey, that's cool. I hope someone else invents this. and We'll try this a little bit. And you got lots of motion with very little meaning. Absolutely not. We are absolutely fixed and focused upon Christ, glorifying him. And we want to see his purposes accomplished In this generation. And so that is why Paul is writing this letter. First Timothy is not kind of just an optional book. Like, yeah, you know, I I might read it or I might not. Actually, what he has written here has to be completely clear in the minds of his people. And that's why we're going to take some time. We're going to walk through this book. We're beginning a series of the intentional church. Because what he spoke of back Uh, He wrote this letter about A.D. 62-64 is just as relevant and just as needed then as it is now. Now, let me tell you, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, his protege, uh, uh, a disciple of his that he sent to pastor this church in Ephesus, he wrote it in a time where Ephesus was facing all sorts of external dangers, at least the church was. Now, if you know anything about Ephesus, and years ago we actually studied the book of Ephesians, and we actually kind of went through all the detail of what this culture looked like, but Ephesus was a leading commercial and cultural city in the Roman Empire. And it actually had, in the heart of its city, one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world, and that was the temple of Artemis, Diana. This was a massive temple, and Diana herself was a sex goddess. And so she was worshipped through all sorts of widespread prostitution and homosexuality and every other form of sexual perversion that man could think of. This god, goddess Artemis, was worshipped in this fashion. And the people in Ephesus, not only that was that was their life, but people came from all around because they were attracted to these kind of worship experiences. This was not only a good place to do business and trade. They had a massive bank that actually was held at the temple 
But you had all sorts of trades going on that appealed to men and men and women's basest desires. And there were all sorts of external dangers because, frankly, it's very appealing. Why do you think all the trash on TV has millions and millions of people captivated every single night? Do you know why? It appeals to their base desires. It's like, oh, there's something in you like, oh, I think I'll watch a little bit more of that. All the ads are meant to entice you like, oh, I don't want to miss that. Or I better set my TiVo so I make sure that I catch that. When in fact, it's just wickedness on display. They're pushing the boundary so far. It's like, and you're just, and you're glued to it. You're drawn to it. Well, so were the people back there. They didn't watch it on TV. It was just right there in their streets. And so the church was facing great external dangers. But let me also tell you, they were facing internal deceivers. Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders. In fact, he's calling right now. And he spoke to the Ephesian elders. And he said, listen, I want you to make sure that it is crystal clear in your mind that there are going to be deceivers that are going to come into your midst. In fact, he says in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, he addresses these elders and he said this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. That's what elders are to do. You're to shepherd and lead the flock. And he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God has raised you up. You're to give oversight. You're to shepherd these people. And he says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Mind you, that's who the church is. People that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the sacrifice of Christ. He's paid the penalty for their sins. The believer is trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And we are completely set apart to him. Paul reminds him, you shepherd Christ's people. Make sure you're doing it his way. And he says, you better be careful. Because in the very next verse, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There are going to be false teachers and they're actually going to come on the inside. They're going to be in the church as much as possible. They're actually apart from it because they're not truly trusting Christ, nor are they really functioning and doing the work of ministry as Christ intended. But they're going to look good and they're going to be persuasive. And he says, and he says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. They're going to draw people to themselves. They're going to try to corrupt you from the inside. As much as God is doing a redeeming work where he transforms people from the inside out, false teachers are going to move in the church. They're going to want acceptability. They're going to want status. They're going to want leadership. They're going to want positions. And they are going to try to turn this thing inside out and destroy it by drawing and focusing and bringing people to themselves rather than drawing and focusing and bringing them to Christ. And he says, therefore, I want you to be on the alert. You see, Timothy, he is in Ephesus because Paul sent him there to go and to pastor this church. And they're facing external dangers and they've got internal deceivers. And so how in the world do you stay on track when you've got situations like this? They had them then and we've got them now. There are internal deceivers. In fact, they are broadcast into your TV. Some of them have radio shows. And, and they, they specialize in captivating weak souls who don't know a whole lot about the Bible. And they're very persuasive, highly attractive. 
And they make it look like they got it all going. And, and they have ways of guilting people to abiding and accepting them and giving them money. So how in the world does a church stay on track? What does an intentional church look like? That's where First Timothy comes in. Let me just give you uh, the theme of this book. The trait that Christ intends is church to embody. That's what this book is about. In a day of self-stylized Christianity, customized faith, Paul says this is what the church is to be and do. It's not everything, but it, is, it, it covers six essential traits it is supposed to have. And let me just give you an overview of what it is. Chapter 1, the, a Christ-centered church is to be convinced of the need of the truth. Chapter 2, a Christ-centered church is to be consecrated or set apart to holiness. And he's going to go on to great detail what that looks like. Chapter 3, a Christ-centered church is to be characterized by godly leaders. And he goes on to describe what characteristics they are to have, the aspirations of every single person who is maturing in the faith. Chapter 4, he says, a trait of a church on track is they're committed to maturity. You're not satisfied that you've got a lot of just little infants and they're behaving like little children. The goal is to bring them to maturity. In chapter 4, he actually explains and talks of what does that look like. Chapter 5, he says, a church that is on track is concerned about honoring others. And finally, in chapter 6, he says, a Christ-centered church is compelled by Christ's glory. This is what the church is to be and do. And so when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, what we're finding here is he is giving an introduction to this letter. He is writing to Timothy, but there is something that is rather profound in this very personal letter that is meant to have universal use. You're going to find what we could call difference makers. How is Timothy going to go about implementing what is written in this letter? And the very beginning of this letter, I'm going to just call them the difference makers. This is what, this is what changes. This is what allows Timothy to fulfill God's purposes in his life. It's what you and I need. It moves you from status quo, complacent Christianity to on fire, vibrancy, purpose, and focus. And so I just want to point this out as we kind of just begin this letter here. But the first difference maker he highlights is, is, is right at the introduction. And I don't know about you, but lots of times people just kind of just breeze through the introduction. It's like, Paul, Timothy, you know, and that's how they wrote the letters. They, they introduced who was writing. OK, and then and so you didn't have to go to the end of the letter. They actually, you know, stated right up front. This is me. This is who I'm writing, who I am. I'm writing. And they actually made the address to the person. It's actually a nice idea, because frankly, when I get long letters, I'm like, who is this? You know, and I, I flipped to the back. Right. I'm like, oh, OK, that helps me get a little context. So the first thing that Paul highlights is the fact that the difference maker of having depth in your relationships is going to take you a long ways. Notice what he says, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, Paul and Timothy had a long-term relationship. He didn't have to, you know, just load this up so strongly by saying he's the apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior. Timothy knows all those things, but Paul knows because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this letter will have widespread circulation. It is a personal letter, 
But yet it's going to be go and pass around throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, it will be a part of the collection called Holy Scripture. And so he states his position. The apostle, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. You don't just call yourself an apostle. You have to be personally have seen Christ, which Paul accounts, but you also have to be sent by him. This is an official office. I know that in some circles it's kind of trendy that if you're some sort of high-powered pastor that you just start suddenly calling yourself an apostle. You don't do that. You have to have personally seen Jesus and he's not making physical revelations of himself. He's actually, you're taking him by faith and you have to be commissioned by him. I would not be toying around with, like, I'm just going to call myself an apostle. That will give me a lot more authority and weight. No, you had to have those two qualifications. And he makes it real clear, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and this would speak of God, he is the one who brings salvation. And this is actually reminiscent of the Old Testament that emphasized that God is a saving God. And he says, God our Savior and Christ Jesus is who is our hope. He puts God, the Father, and Christ on, equal, on an equal plane. That's because God is triune in nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, I was actually commissioned by the Father and Christ Jesus, who's our hope. He's our hope for salvation, for sanctification, and for our future glory. And that's what literally the gospel is. When you believe the truth about Jesus. Now we use hope like, I sure hope it doesn't rain today. And it's like, it may or may not. But hope used, especially in the New Testament, had absolute certainty to it. This isn't something like wishful thinking. This is an absolute certainty. And so he says, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. And notice how he he writes to Timothy, and I don't want you to miss this. My true child in the faith. He writes these words with this kind of tender introduction to remind Timothy Hey, you're not in this alone. There is a depth of relationship. There's only one other time that, he, that Paul uses my true child, and that's actually in the book of Titus, just a couple books away. Another one of Paul's key disciples. There's a depth of relationship there. And let me just give you a little background on Timothy. Timothy grew up in a home where his mom and his grandmother were Jewish, and his dad was a Greek. His mom and dad, his mom and grandmother actually become Christians. And you can read about this in the book of 2 Timothy. And they pour their lives into this boy. In fact, they teach him the scriptures and they teach him from a very early age. And Timothy, at some point when he's young, he places his faith in Christ. It is possible during Paul's first missionary journey that not only mom and grandmother, but also Timothy come and place their faith in Christ. But we do know this, that when the second missionary journey takes place with Paul, Acts chapter 16, everybody is speaking really fine about one of these young guys, kind of like some of our kids that are right here. They're on fire for Christ. They're sharing their faith. They're investing their lives of others. They understand what the church is. And Paul picks up this young guy, Timothy, and he says, I want you to go with me. And this began one of the great pictures of discipleship in the Bible. Paul and Timothy, man, they are everywhere. You cannot read the New Testament without seeing that there's a discipleship, friendship. They're co-laboring wherever Paul's going, Timothy's going. I mean, they're in Berea, Athens, Corinth, Jerusalem. When Paul's imprisoned at the end of the book of Acts, guess who's there with him? Timothy. When When Paul has a mission and he needs a quality guy to go, he sends the young guy, 
Timothy to go. In fact, you see that like the book of Philippians was written when Paul is in jail. Paul sends Timothy and Epaphroditus. And in chapter two of Philippians, he actually outlines a little bit of the character of this guy, Timothy. He's described as a kindred spirit. This guy is like minded. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. By the way, if you're going to minister, folks, you've got to get off of you and focused on others. If it's all about you and your feelings and how are these people making me happy, you're going to not be involved in Christian ministry. Timothy understood it's about pouring your life out for the sake of Christ into others. He was seeking after the interest of Christ. He had a proven worth in the forwarding and the advancement of the gospel. And he was a guy who was sincere and, and loving in his service. Paul said, he serves me like a child serves his father. You can't do better than Timothy. And so when there were some really hard jobs to be done, tough ministry, Paul said, I'm sending you the very best. I'm sending Timothy. And that's exactly what we find when you come to 1 Timothy. Paul had sent Timothy or left him there in Ephesus to do a significant work. And that's what you're finding here. Paul, as he begins this letter, he's reminding you, Timothy, we got a depth of relationship. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 12 says, And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him, and a cord of three strands will not be quickly torn apart. If you and I are going to be involved in the ministry, we need to be doing this together. Ministry is far better together. It was meant to be done in community. And that's why Paul is introducing this letter this way. Man, we are in this together and discipleship creates depth. It creates a depth of relationship experience. You create like this band of brothers. It is camaraderie. You are in this together and you're advancing and moving forward. And so that's why Paul's beginning this letter. He's pointing out, first of all, let me tell you this. There is a depth of relationship that you and I share. And then notice what else he said right there at the end of chapter two, uh, chapter one, verse two, another significant difference maker. And you might have just just kind of blow by this, but please don't. He emphasizes dependence upon God. He says grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is emphasizing the resources and the riches that we have in Christ. He highlights grace which speaks of these divine resources that we have for Christian life. They're totally undeserved, but he gives unmerited pardon and he gives transforming favor. If you're going to be involved in ministry, you need spiritual strength. You need grace. Paul says, soak it in deeply. Grace, mercy speaks of God's compassionate care and protection of one who is needy or one who is prone to fail. Does that sound like you and me? It sounds like me. I am prone to fail. I need what? Mercy. God is gracious. He's merciful. He doesn't be wallowing around in guilt. He doesn't like, oh, I'm just a miserable failure. I think I'll just sit on the sidelines. He wants you to experience grace and mercy. He wants you in the game. And notice what else he gives. And he says, and peace. Peace speaks of the security and rest that comes from the presence of Christ. And this is what we need. I mean, yesterday, there were some things going on in my head, and I was kind of processing some things that are difficult for me, challenging. I'm like, this is going, I'm going in the wrong direction. And so I just took a couple minutes, and I just asked God for his grace, mercy, and peace. I am seeking this from Christ, and I am thinking about him. 
And I was just like, wow, this is so good. My situation didn't change, but I changed because I was drawing from the resources of Christ. That's what he intends for all of us. Drawing from the strength, the grace, the mercy, and the peace that we find in Christ. All that I need is found in him. And when your perspective gets off and you feel defeated or you're not, you're not happy, you're facing challenges and difficulties, i.e. going through life, what you and I need is a depth of dependence upon God. And that's why he's highlighting grace, mercy, and peace. Now let me tell you, there's a reason why you're going to need great dependence upon God. And it's another difference maker that you find highlighted here. And that is because you're going to need determination in the face of difficulties. I wish I could tell you that just, you just put your faith and trust in Jesus and it's going to be like a rose garden. Everything's going to be perfect for you. You'll never have a problem in your, ever again. You'll, you're going to be spared of all difficulties. Life is going to be smooth. And I know folks in the prosperity gospel, and, and that sounds good for folks down in Houston at a very large church, and it goes good on TV, but let me tell you, that is not reality. You're going to face difficulties. And so right after he tells, reminds Timothy of the grace and the mercy and peace we have in Christ, he says, you need to have determination in the face of difficulties. Look at verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, that is kind of where modern Greece is, the Balkan Peninsula, remain on at Ephesus. You might have missed it, but for Timothy, these were huge words. Because I get the impression that Timothy was ready to bail. It's like, this is too hard. These people are so unreceptive. The external difficulties are so bad. The internal issues are significant and growing worse. That people are becoming less and less responsive. And like, let's just cut you know, our losses and move on out. And Paul says, no, you need determination in the face of your difficulties. Remain on at Ephesus. I got a buddy of mine back in our youth pastor days. I was up in Portland. He was down in Southern California. Um, he was invited and accepted a senior pastor position in a church. And, you know, he's all excited. He's going to go and he's going to do it. He's going to preach the word, you know, and it's going to be wonderful, right? You kind of think that's how it's all, it's all you do. And you teach the word, man. These people are just like, yes, we want to do that. And he went to this particular church and they were so mean-spirited. They were so territorial and they literally just shredded him. When he came to his first place where he could actually take his vacation, he and his wife fled back to Southern Cal. And she was like, I do not want to go back there. He was like, man, I'm with you. But he came back and we got together at Pine Cove when we were at a men's retreat. And I said, whoa, Ken, man, you're here. And he said, it was this verse that had me come back. Remain on at Ephesus. And so he did. And today, by the way, There's a thriving church. Which, friends, you're going to face difficulty. And the difficulty that Paul was talking about, Timothy, about, is that you got some serious issues going on in that church. Remain on at Ephesus, verse 3, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. You've got folks that are corrupting the gospel. And you... You find this. It seems like the New Testament is always emphasizing you got these savage wolves, they're going to come inside. And oftentimes, they were folks that we call Judaizers. They were taking elements of the Hebrew faith and from the old scriptures, and they were saying, you got to do these sort of things if you're really going to be a Christian. 
And so you've got them adding things like ceremonies and requirements and standards of the old covenant. And they're saying these are prerequisites for salvation and sanctification. And you've got to be doing these things. And he says, you've got to watch out. You need to stay at your post, Timothy, because you have folks. They're teaching strange doctrines, verse 4. And you also have to teach them nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And this was, I don't know why they would get into this, but there are parts of Judaism that would take the genealogies and they would make these allegorical, fanciful stories and myths about them. And they would like totally entrance people and get people to be thinking about these things and their connections with these genealogies. And they were missing how the faith moved forward. That's why Paul's writing, listen, you got folks in your church that are paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, and these even could be some of the Greek and Roman myths, the, you know, part of the, the pantheon of gods. Somehow they may be intertwining those. It's not clearly defined. Certainly was clear in Timothy's mind, I'm sure. And he says, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. That word administration has the, has the word okonomos, which is house law. God has a way he intends his church to function and to move forward, i.e. the book of 1 Timothy. You got folks in the church that are trying to corrupt it. Timothy, you need to stay in your position. You need to actually fend off and work with this situation. In fact, he says you need to instruct them. Literally, you see that in verse 3? It's a military term for like a command. Command them to cease. It's not like, well, we can kind of work this or you've got a different spin on Christianity or the gospel. No. God wants his faith pure. He wants his people pure. He wants his theology and his gospel to remain pure. That's why he's writing. And Timothy, you need to work through these difficulties. You are going to face difficulties in life and ministry. We could call them the killer D's. Maybe these sound familiar. But there's distraction getting sidetracked with side issues. Our youth on their Disciple Now weekend, that was their entire theme. They were looking at the distractions, the things that are coming after them. And let me tell you, it was loaded. Remember how hard it was to go through high school and junior high? Anybody remember that? Wasn't that a joy? And you're probably going, whew, I'm so glad I'm out of that, right? They're in it. And the distractions are intense. Technology and things that show up on their phones and on their computers. Satan is out to destroy Distractions are plentiful. Distraction is one of those killer deeds. Let me give you another one. And this is the one I think that Timothy was facing. It's discouragement. Life seems heavy and hopeless and hard, and you just come to the point, I want to give up. Anybody been there? Yeah. If you are involved in the ministry, at times, man, it is very heavy and hard. I think that's what Timothy was facing, man. That's why I don't want to stay in Ephesus. Next, let me give you another killer deed, disengagement. And this is what happens when you just kind of give up. You go passive. You drop out. And you see this. People that once were just alive and they got vitality, they just kind of fall off the face of the earth. They once had a ministry, they were involved in others, they're discipling, they're investing, perhaps they're a small group leader, and they just, they're gone. What happened? One of the killer Ds, disengagement. Let me give you another one. Disqualification, where you behave in such a way that your sin sidelines you for a time. You sin and you violate the clear will of God, and you got to set aside a time for restoration and recovery. Any of these killer deeds take you out of the ministry. What Paul is telling Timothy is you need determination in the face of difficulties. And then finally, let me just 
point out one other thing. This is huge. This is a great difference maker. Verse 5, you need to know what in the world you're doing. You need to stay focused. You need dedication to the word of God and its goal. If you ever had any question like, gee, what is the end purpose? What is the church supposed to be doing? Well, you don't have to guess, and you certainly don't have to make it up. Look at verse 5. It's right there. Whoa. But the goal of our instruction, yeah, what is the goal? It's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. God's goal is for absolute maturity in Christ where you are a loving individual. You absolutely love God. You're not performing for God. You're not trying to earn God's favor. You actually have a heart that loves God. And by the way, he knows. He knows if you've left your first love. He knows if you truly find joy in him or you're just like, I'm just slugging through this. And you also have a love for people. You have maturity, your sincerity. There's a commitment There is a warmth to you. There is compassion. There is care. There is a love for God and a love for people. It is the work of the Spirit. As you stay focused on Christ and you see his loveliness, you're drawn to him. He does his work through you. You become mature. That is the goal. He says the goal of our instruction is love. And this love flows from three sources. First of all, it's a pure heart, having the idea that you don't have conflicting loyalties. It's not like, yeah, I love God, but I really love my entertainment, and I, or I literally love my money. No, it's all settled. It's Christ, and I love him, and all these things that he's given me, man, I'm, I know I can enjoy them, but I know that they're meant for his purposes, but I'm all about Christ. You have a pure heart. There's holiness. You're not diving into stuff that is setting you on the sidelines. And if you are actively sinning, you're not, oh, I just gave into my lust again. Oh, yeah, I'm just lying compulsively all the time and I'm never dealing with it. I know there is a war going on in your soul. And complacency is your reality because you are choosing to sin. You need a pure heart. Jesus specializes it. You just confess your sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us your sins. And notice what else he says, a good conscience rather than one that is laden with guilt. Your conscience is like your warning mechanism. And, and it's, like, it's like the security system of your soul. And it tells you like, no, oh, you ought to shouldn't be watching this. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say that. And it goes off. And especially if you violate it. On the other hand, your conscience affirms good decisions. When you're doing the right thing, you actually go, you know what? I'm going to... I'm going to set myself aside and I think I'm going to just go love on this person. I, I don't know that person in the hospital, but, you know, I know they're really struggling. And I'm going to go see them. You do it. You care for your neighbor. You care for your kids, your spouse. When you act on love, guess what happens? Your conscience goes off like, dude, you are on. That is exactly right. You are moving forward in maturity. And then he says, not only do you have a pure heart, a good conscience, but you've got a sincere faith. Literally, you have a genuine confidence that God's word is true. And so, friends, the most important part of a church, it's not the parking lot or the nursery or the aesthetics. The most important part of a church is how they handle the word of God and what they're doing with Jesus Christ. Is the word of God integrated in everything they're doing? Does God's word drive the church or are there some sort of hidden agendas that we're doing a lot of cool or just unique worldly stuff in Jesus' name? All all ministry Better hit this mark. Verse 5 is the test of all true teaching. Does it produce these kind of results? If it's not, it's not teaching according to the scripture. And so 
what are we supposed to be doing as a church? How do we get there? I mean, is a church like a factory and you just got a lot of machinery in motion and you bring in a bunch of raw materials and you hire a bunch of folks and you just like, just go and have a great time and build stuff and you got things going and people flying, got a lot of activities. And someone walks in and goes, hey, really cool, man. You got a lot of neat stuff going on in your church, man. Your bulletin is so chock full. I mean, tell me, what is it that you're building? Ah, uh, what? What do you, I don't know, but I got to go to this. Uh, the pastor says I need to have this and... No, what, what, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? Don't ask such deep questions, man. We're at church, you know? You wouldn't run your business that way, would you? You wouldn't run your school that way, would you? And you might want to be rethinking this. How is it, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? Well, let me just tell you. You need to know what does discipleship look like in a local church. And Howard Hendricks, uh, he recently passed away, but I think he's the one that did it the best. He offered three questions that has been very helpful for me. Guys like Tommy Nelson and others have really picked up on this. And it's like, what exactly are we supposed to do in a local church? What is it supposed to look like? Well, the first thing you want to ask is, what do you want a person that has been in your church to look like? After they've kind of gone through and they've been around and they've been involved in what you think is important, What do they look like? And the answer to that question is verse 5, chapter 1. You want them loving, coming from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. That's the goal. You want them Christ-centered. There's a genuine love for Christ. There's a desire to glorify him in all things. You want them committed to God, his word, to people. You want them competent. Like Paul talks about, you want them complete, teleos, mature. And you remember we keep talking about that? At Fellowship, we want this graphically displayed. We use our tree. It's our logo. As a person, when a person comes to Christ, they start sinking deep roots. You see that? In knowing God and his word, that starts transforming their character, which is like the trunk. And as they branch out, it shows up in their relationships with their spouse, their kids, family, neighbors, coworkers, and it shows up in their ministry slash career. They live out their faith. The life of Christ is being lived out. And you want your people competent. They know how to study the word. They can share their faith and they actually do it. They've got discernment. They've got wisdom. The fruit of the spirit is being manifest in their life. They have Christian maturity. So the first question you ask is, well, what is it? What what do you want them to look like? Well, then the second question you need to ask is then, well, what kind of church will produce this kind of person? And this is a church that is going to give them time teaching, training, if you need another T, tenderness or love, you're going to have love, and you're going to entrust the ministry to them. Where the ministry is being carried out. By the way, that's what pastors are, are supposed to do. Elders are supposed to what? Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so if you're going to have people that look like this, you need to have a church that gives them time, teaching, training, tenderness, and trust. Well, then the third question that Hendricks says that you need to ask and answer is, well, then what kind of leaders produce this kind of church that produces that kind of people? And let me give you the answer. It's leaders who model this. They're doing it. They're not exhorting people to something they theoretically should be doing. As go the leaders, so go the people. The leaders are the ones that have got some experience doing the very thing that Jesus says, this is what I want my church to do. The definition of a leader is this. A leader is one who leads. How about that? Pretty simple. That's what leaders do. You cannot have a plan B. Jesus wants us hitting the target. At Fellowship, 
We're an intentional church. We're all about Christ, his glory, and his purposes in our lifetime. And being able to hit the target makes all the difference. I've got my uh, brother. I'm the oldest of four boys, and I'm actually the smallest. Okay, So my one brother, he's the third in line. When he's in high school, he's 6'5", 275. He gets a full ride playing football as a lineman. Uh, today, he's, he's 279. He's still 6'5". He, uh, he's been for 13 and a half years. He's been on his police force outside of Nashville. He's got his master's in criminal justice. And he's, he is a machine. He is the commander of the SWAT teams uh, for his force outside of Nashville. And every time we go visit, we try to go to this place called On Targets. It's indoor shooting range. And we go there, and I have to tell you, like, I'm totally weak, man. I, I'm, I'm just not a really good shot. Try. And then and my brother, on the other hand, I mean, it is impressive how good he is. Like, he doesn't miss and it's just one right after another, after another. And I've asked him, I said, how in the world do you get so good? And he said this, sight alignment and plenty of practice. Sight alignment, you've got to know exactly what you're shooting at. And plenty of practice. Friends, God intends for us to be the church like he desires. The book of 1 Timothy is sight alignment and life gives us plenty of practice. And so, friends, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to try to keep reading 1 Timothy. For some of you, that might, means reading it five times. For other of, you, other of you, you could do it 50 times. But let's regularly start reading so that we're hitting the target. Because we've got one goal in mind. It's the goal that Christ intends for his church. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the amazing power of your word. And just even in introduction, we see just how profound you are, your riches of relationship, the depth of camaraderie that we share, the focus that you have given us. So, Lord, may your word be, have its full reality in our church. I pray, Lord, that you would, as we go through this book, do something transformational. And so we commit ourselves to your work, that we would be the church you've intended. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.